I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Al Scott, Sarah Castle, and Thomas Bryans, founding directors of the architecture practice If Do. We met back in June at their office in Bermondsey and talked about, among other things, the establishment of If Do and its prehistory in architecture school, the leveraging of small projects to secure larger commissions, and the changing role of design manifestos in light of the wider audience to which they now speak. And now, Here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Are we right in thinking that you haven't done a three-way interview? I haven't done this before. (laughs) So we're quite... We get on. I thought we get on, Sarah. We don't. We talk over each other. (laughs) That's like the rule number one of podcasting, isn't it? Don't don't talk over each other. Right. Yeah. But I think it's it's fine if you do. (laughs) Uh, Well, I thought it was interesting actually that you guys insisted on um, meeting as a group Um, because typically in practice there's there's usually one public-facing partner, Mm. Um, and so already that kind of. was a cue for me that something interesting is going on in terms of how you work together. Um, But I I think before we get into my working dynamics, uh, just starting at the beginning, um, I know you all studied together uh, prior to setting up in 2014 uh, in Edinburgh. Um, You did your uh, bachelor's degree there together. And you worked on uh, a thesis project. Yep. Obviously, like student work can sometimes be embarrassing, and uh, maybe there's a certain amount of post-rationalization that goes into linking early work to to current practice. But is there any kind of kernel um, there in that project that might tell us something about the work uh, you're pursuing now? It it was based on a large grid, um, (laughs) (laughs) which um, we probably, like many architects, do tend to revert back to a grid at any available opportunity. We came almost full circle from that project when we came to look at the Dulwich Pavilion and at the time we we knew it and actually it was it made it all the more special for us winning that project early on because it was so similar to the way that we had last really worked in that way speculatively with an open brief and responding to the context of a land, an open landscape around a, a Georgian building, uh, creating a, a figure in the landscape, which in that case was our was our pavilion. But it, it, it was a 
it was it was a really nice exercise to go through and I think why it was successful for us yeah I think um often at university when you're told to do group work there's a kind of hesitation over who you pick and whether they're really good at architecture or not and what grades they're getting and if you're like if it's gonna rub off on you and actually what's really lovely about um well what was really lovely about that project was that and um, we kind of sat down together and we were 21 probably when we did that project um, and it was a really open dialogue from the outset it felt really um, like we had a collective output um, from the outset um, and I think that's something that really stuck with us you know um, it was particularly kind of uh, deconstructivist in terms of uh, the way that we were being taught at the time. So we're projecting kind of objects into the landscape, kind of reimagining them. And it's not necessarily how we design today, but certainly the way that we were talking about architecture and conversing about design is something that we've kind of was a seed and has developed since. Mm. And so uh, was it at that point that you decided down the road that you try and establish a practice together and when when did that thought uh, come about uh, it was later it's funny when on our first day actually when the three of us met i remember quite distinctly uh, the tutor at the time speaking to the whole year saying you'll either have enough of architecture and you'll leave in a week or two's time but those of you that are left will become really close friends or fall out irreparably or quite frequently marry each other, which we all found funny at the time, but uh, they didn't suggest that any of us would set up practice together, which is quite interesting. So no, that came later in answer to your question. I I think, was it probably 2012, 13? There was always always some discussion amongst probably a slightly larger group of friends from Edinburgh about setting up a practice together. And the three of us had had conversations sort of for a few years probably vaguely talking about the potential of one's setting up a practice but we were in different cities studying in different countries um, and it just wasn't the right place and then it happened that we were back in London um, working for three relatively small practices but very interesting practices in their own right and the the circumstances just felt right, I guess. So something I'm always anxious about in like considering the possibility of starting a practice is the fact that um, I would want to work with close friends, and yet at the same time I want to protect that relationship. Mm-hmm. Do you guys see yourself as friends before partners? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Although I I think I can speak for all of us, but I miss Thomas and Sarah in a weird way. Does that make sense as friends? Because we're very, very close. I mean, we spend more time with each other than we do anyone else, I, I mm. suppose. Yeah. Well, awake, anyway. <laughs> um, and so it, it's quite intense. We have a very, very good relationship and founded on a really firm friendship. But, you know, you do find that quite easily you can stop talking about your personal life especially when things are busy and, and you might anything else anymore. one day to, one day Thomas came into the office and said uh, oh I'm moving house today and Sarah didn't know 
<laughs> I mean, that's a big life event for someone in close proximity of you to have absolutely no idea what's happening. And considering we had like, conversations every day for about seven hours, so it's, like, it's ridiculous. And I think, um, yeah, we, um, I, I find it shocking sometimes if we actually end up doing something at the weekend. Like, it, 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 I think when we first set up, the thing that I found the weirdest, it was for about a week when it was just the three of us, we hugged each other like you would do when you see your friend for the first time in a while. And then we realised that you can't really keep that up in business with each other. So that, that's kind of like, it's funny because like you lose that kind of slight... The kind of normalcy of hanging around with friends kind of goes, but you get a new dynamic and it's kind of richer and better mm -hmm. for it, I think. That's kind of interesting that uh, there are certain adjustments that naturally occur once you start to reimagine your relationship and the practice itself as a business. Um, how did you conceive of the practice as a business to begin with? I read, I think there was a profile in the Reba journal mm. um, mapping out um, how you how you went about establishing the practice, who you went to speak with, uh, and the kind of advice you were seeking out, not only from other architects, but uh, from people in business in the financial world as well. That's a, that's a really interesting question. I, I remember a quote, I think it was from Edinburgh, actually, when we were studying there, um, from Herzog and de Moron, that said, you can be a very talented designer, but if you're not good at business, you'll never be a good architect. Mm -hmm. So that, that for us was always paramount. And we knew that we, we had to operate as a business, we had to make money in order to actually sort of design the architecture that we wanted to do and, and build the buildings that we, we wanted to follow the agenda that we have. Um, so that was critical. And on the, the question of advice, I think that's something we've always been very aware of that there's so much we don't know and so much that we're still learning. <clears throat> and so we seek out advice all the time. Um, it's, yeah, I, I think it's one of the most enjoyable things actually about having the business and the, the learning curve that comes with that and being able to have those conversations where you're just curious in terms of what what people have done and talking to architects, sort of lawyers, finance people, whoever, it's, um, it's quite an enjoyable process. I know that probably a lot of that information was hard fought for and won, but if there is an audience of young architects listening to this, uh, is there any kind of advice based on those conversations you could kind of share around part? I, I would say focus on where you want to be in five years time as the first milestone not and it's so tempting when you when you take that leap to to focus on what's right in front of you getting those first few commissions which are very very difficult but you've got to constantly think what are those projects doing how can we use those projects to get to the next project to the next project to to, to prevent the pitfall, well, not necessarily a pitfall, a lot of architects build very successful practices on doing smaller residential work, but there is a potential to get stuck in a rut if you take too many of, of the same type of projects on that are not aligned with a bigger picture thinking, such as a manifesto. That would be, I think, collectively, uh, would you guys agree, a man really a manifesto, just working out what it is you want the practice to be? 
we were so clear when we set up what the identity of the practice was going to be and that was going to be the thing that considering we didn't have any commissions when we set up and we all left our jobs and it was terrifying and we sat in a room and we're like okay well now we need to get some some clients the the identity was the thing that allowed us um to kind of really um uh have that kind of projection uh, five years into the future so like okay we would love to test some of these ideas on smaller projects and so we're going to need some cash coming through the company but really that um, manifesto or the identity that we define was what kind of shaped how we um, how we kind of presented ourselves to the world so mm -hmm. there's also kind of these themes of curation that kind of run through our way of thinking about architecture so you don't present everything you're doing, you present a selection that is in line with your identity and that kind of um, starts to define your output and also allows clients to kind of, to pick you. Because mm -hmm. they can see what you're trying to achieve as well as what you are currently working on. We talk about the idea of leverage quite a lot in terms of what we can leverage to get the work that we want. And that goes back to what Al was saying about not getting stuck in a rut of small projects and, and what Sarah was saying about curation in terms of how do we take these small initial projects or sort of some really tiny ones or using consultants' sort of portfolios as well, how do we leverage all of that to get the type of work that we want? And so Sarah actually gave a guerrilla tactics talk last year on exactly that mm -hmm. idea and I think that has helped us to get um, towards the type of projects that we want. So there's a lot of questions in, in there that I want to kind of tease out. Uh, first being the identity of the practice itself. Um, and then I want to talk about, I'm just going to kind of lay it out now so we know what we're moving towards, yeah. Yeah. but the practice's identity and its manifesto, mm -hmm. which I kind of want to read actually, maybe we could talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then this idea of scale, and uh, what scale the practice aspires to uh, move into ultimately. Um, I guess those are the two big ones. So maybe we could start with the, the practice identity and the manifesto, which I, do you mind if I read it? No, no, no. no, no. I'm just gonna read it out. Okay, so um, every project starts with a question, what if? What if the places in which we live and work could make us healthier and happier, improving lives through better design? What if uh, we could create beautiful buildings that work for the environment as well as for us, cleaning the air we breathe and generating more energy than they use? What if we could make spaces that everyone could enjoy, creating diverse and inclusive environments? What if we designed our cities for people to cherish and develop the places in which they live, providing long-term value, building a better future? What if we work to achieve all of this? We do. Okay, so that, to me, that's both incredibly inspiring and exciting, but also, in some ways, very generic. Mm -hmm. um, in that you're kind of asking a question about, like, what if we made good architecture? Mm -hmm. um, which, in a way, is a question that needs to be asked now, mm -hmm. unfortunately. So I understand, I understand how you package this into a manifesto, but I think it says a lot about where we're at. Um, in terms of the architectural yeah. culture now. I, I completely agree. And I think the biggest, the biggest point there would be what is good architecture and what historically have we understood good architecture to be. Uh, I think there's a general shift at the moment. Um, 
away away from a slightly more egotistical architecture um, and towards a more community-based architecture. I think that comes across in our name and a lot of new practices names as well. I think, yes, it is generic and it does explain what good architecture is, but I don't think a manifesto answering that same question or asking those same questions about what is good architecture would, would read the same 10 or 15 years ago. Because what that's talking about is thinking about a bigger picture, thinking about communities and the environment, thinking about giving architecture to people to make their own, to take ownership of. And that's what we're pushing for, along with a lot of other architects agreed. But what it does, as you say, it's inspiring. To a, We had to think about who we were writing that for. Were we writing it for other architects to read? and think, well, we think that too, of course we do. Or were we writing it for people, our clients, people that we were building buildings for, that actually it might seem generic to us, but those are questions which are inspiring to our clients. Mm-hmm. We're also writing it for ourselves, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, to hold because us to account. It, yeah, exactly. And we, and we do refer back to that. I mean, that's, they are very generic ideas about... Um, sort of serving communities, serving the environment, sort of creating buildings that benefit the local economy. Um, that is what all architecture should be. But sadly, it's not. And so for us to write that and to put that out there at the point that we had no work is, this is what we are going to do. And we are going to strive to make all of our projects achieve these things. Um, and it was it was really it was really important in that sense. I think it's also well two points. One, that um, firstly, when most architects start a practice, a, a lot of them will be reliant on kind of small scale residential projects, which of course we did our fair share of and still do. Um, and actually, that kind of statement has a much bigger mm-hmm. picture in mind. So that's one thing. It kind of adds on to this, like, what we're going to be doing in five years' time question. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if you write that statement and you put it on your website, then you can't keep doing extensions forever. You have to do something bigger. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that the essence of that statement can't be applied to small-scale residential projects, but it, it, it can't have the same impact. Um, and I think that's kind of really um, important for us. And I think the other thing is that the second point is that that manifesto isn't necessarily static. It mm. stayed with us for three and a half years, which is how long we've been going. Um, but I don't suppose that we're so precious about the wording of it that it, it won't be something that evolves as we kind of move yeah. forward. Yeah. So it may be that, you know, Fingers crossed, we fix the architecture and everybody's like, great, we're creating amazing buildings for the community and everybody's on board and, you know, that that would be a wonderful thing. And then the manifesto will evolve potentially beyond that. But also, I think there's nuances to it that will develop with the way that our practice develops when we kind of, um, as we grow and get older. I think that's actually, you know, Thomas and Sarah just building upon that point that it was a line in the sand that was way, way away from where we were at the time. And so that an alternative manifesto, maybe not thinking about 10 years ago, maybe just thinking about a manifesto that we might have written that was more befitting of the projects we were working on, might have been 
what if we designed buildings that had ample natural light? What if we designed buildings that used beautiful materials? What if we designed buildings that were free of cold bridging? What if we designed buildings that had a connection to the garden that you don't currently have because your bathroom's in the way? We do. impact and and it is that holding to account it's driven us and it's pushed us and can you imagine when we didn't have any projects when we set up we wrote that manifesto not only wrote it we put it on a website that was a holding page where that was the only thing with our phone number Hmm. out there and we left ourselves open to scrutiny mainly from from the architectural world that we knew and operated in because they basically laughed at it. Hmm. To to call it a manifesto is probably a bit highbrow. In reality, it's a statement statement of intent, a sort of uh, direction of travel, as it were. But it it goes back to the points that were made earlier about curation and leverage. It's the, it's all part of the same thing in a way. It's like how, what image are we projecting and how do we um, define that to get the work that we want and um, that manifesto statement is, is one of the ways we're doing that. interesting uh, is that um, the audience for this practice and for a lot of newer practices seems to have shifted away from um, the kind of architecture, taste-making, cultural elite and into a broader public, Mm. uh, which I guess explains in a way the the change of language Mm. and the change uh, of the image that you're putting forward now. Um, I know Tom... You gave a TED talk or a TEDx talk, yeah. Um, which I guess was another way of unpacking this manifesto about mm-hmm. <coughs> the ripple effects of architecture. Mm-hmm. And that talk, as all TED talks tend to be, are geared towards a very general audience. Yeah. Um, how do you maintain a sense of architectural or like conceptual integrity mm-hmm. uh, in a project? while still uh, making the work and making the practice accessible to a wider public. Because mm. I just, when I hear Manifesto and when I, when I think of new practices uh, in the past, there's always been this kind of um, kernel of agitation and difference and um, um, 
almost outlandishness mm. and provocation. Mm. And I think that in a way, that in the ways that we've already discussed, that's here in your manifesto insofar as you're just proposing to do good architecture now is in a way kind of radical. Mm. But do, do you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of, there's those two audiences that need to be addressed somehow. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of uh, strike that balance between the two? That's, that's a really interesting question. I think it, I mean, ultimately it's about how do you communicate with different audiences? Um, and I'm actually thinking, I know that you did a, another podcast recently with someone from Zaha Hadid's office. Yeah, with Shajay Bhushan. Yeah, and there they have um, uh, an identity that's sort of within the architectural community that's um, uh, on some levels quite theoretical. But when it comes to the public, it's ultimately about imagery. Mm -hmm. um, and that in a way is the direction that architecture had got to where it was just about the image and I think we're trying to um, pull it back from that slightly to say that actually it's about the, the community and life and society and, and this bigger thing so it's like how do we um, and I think in a way those, those overlap between an architectural audience and a public audience because as you say fundamentally it's about good architecture um, but we do have to communicate in slightly different terms, one to the other. Mm. Um, and I don't, I'm hesitating because we don't necessarily have that conversation very, very much. I don't know how much we change the way we communicate, whether it's to the public or to the profession. I think um, one thing that um, is important to note is that we are still interested in concepts and kind of mm. um, the beauty of space and, you know, all of these things that I suppose are the historic drivers of small practices or what, what kind of our manifesto would have been had we written it at the, you know, the point at which we did our project together when we were 21. Um, I found um, Alison Brooks last year was doing a number of talks which were around kind of some principles of architecture which included the words generosity and civicness but also included the word beauty um, and what I found really interesting about that is that she kind of was talking about beauty and saying that people really struggle to still talk about that because it feels kind of gratuitous to say mm. and uh, of course it's subjective right but there are still kind of some fundamental principles of buildings where I think you can you can feel it and and we still want to get that kind of idea of beauty into what we're producing it's not just about kind of um, big picture without a kind of eye for detail and an eye for kind of just creating kind of amazing spaces I think I think that's right really the the best of our projects will will speak to everyone albeit in different ways so even in a simple project such as the Dulwich Pavilion that we did last year that had a lot of uh, conceptual drivers to it um, it was very very closely driven as well by context and it was referential in many different ways that a lot of the public audience visiting it probably had no idea about but yet loved it because it was quite simply fun and so that, I would come back to Thomas's point, is what it's all about. It's a building that we thought, and hopefully others 
thought it was beautiful, so it ticked that box. It engaged with the public and the community, and it did what the client wanted in bringing diversity to the gallery, so it ticked that box. But it also, as a design, was very, very carefully, conceptually thought through and detailed and delivered. And it was very fascinating for us, you know, the mix of events that happened there over the summer from meeting with other architects and engineers that you would be standing in the space and they would notice that the double truss echoed that of the uh, double transom on the lanterns on the top of the gallery and that the building was perfectly set out on the centre of this and that the proportions echoed those of the blind arcade on the building, so on and so forth. And you could have a conversation about the meaning of afterimage with them, which was the concept for, um, for the pavilion which responded to the theme of memory. So there was all of that. But yet at the same time, when you watched it in the middle of the day, full of children running around, sticking their sticky, ice-creamy fingers all, o- all over the mirrors, it was also brilliant fun. And actually the trace of all of those sticky fingerprints at a certain height added yet another layer, another datum to the building that was just as enjoyable as, as, as the ones we first conceived of. It's, it's made me think back to Edinburgh, actually, and the, the point that Sarah was making earlier about um, this deconstructivist education that we had there because and we were having this conversation recently about what we have taken from our Edinburgh education what we have left behind and what we've carried on deconstructivism we have left behind but with it comes an extraordinary layer of narrative in terms of the both the conceptual narrative and the, the sort of story narrative and a lot of what we do will still have that sort of high level conceptual driver whether it's the, the Dulwich Pavilion and its relationship to Sone or um, any other project but the audience won't the, the public audience doesn't necessarily read that um, and certainly I think that was one of our criticisms always of deconstructivist projects is that it's got this amazing message but you don't really notice unless you're an architect and you've, you've read essays on this building yeah or, or that awful thought from the architectural community that if you don't understand all of the complexities behind the building, you can't possibly enjoy it on that same high level. Mm. We're not about that. Mm. Yeah. Definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we could talk a little more about the Dulwich Pavilion. Mm-hmm. Um, I never visited it. <laughs> I'm just going to come out and say that yeah. too late now. <laughs> And I think it's, it's, it's interesting that I never visited it because I felt like I did. I mean, it was so widely covered mm. and it was all over social media, Instagram in particular. Uh, there's a film of it on your website. Um, I felt in a way that I was totally immersed in the project, uh, even though I hadn't been there in person. Mm. And I think that says a lot about the way we consume architecture now uh, and possibly the way we design. Mm. Uh, did you have... Did you have, I mean, it's called After Image, you obviously had this idea of, mm. of, of imagery in mind as you were designing this project, but did you anticipate that it would be uh, received and circulated the way it was online? I think um, one of, so, so the first kind of sentence of the project is actually a quote from Ben Van Berkel about this kind of, this idea of After Image. 
I'm Caroline Best. Um, but the um, idea being that um, there's a kind of uh, actually after image is a scientific concept. So you know, if you look into a bright light and then close your eyes, and you can still see the kind of pinpricks of light um, in on the inside of your eyelids. So it's that idea of a kind of a memory that stays with you beyond kind of it being there. And it, they were talking about it in relation to kind of kaleidoscopes and, and mirrors, etc. And so that was kind of our starting point for the project. But really, it's about something that lasts beyond. Um, the building's lifetime which when you're creating a temporary project is actually really interesting because our first sentence was imagining it when it was gone mm. rather than it actually being there still so I mean okay of course it going on Instagram and you know it, it, there was a lot of people photographing it particularly because it, you know you don't even need to take a selfie because there's loads of mirrors <laughs> you can just hold your phone up so it becomes and, and it, it was very um, photogenic because you could take a photograph of the building and a tree behind you at the same time so it becomes interesting like that um, but I think um, we were we had very much in mind this kind of um, essence of what we wanted to create kind of from the outset I think yeah Sarah's right we we wanted a building that would last mm -hmm. beyond its existence that would leave a lasting impression and I think in answer to your question we probably didn't in our wildest dreams imagine although as Thomas says we hoped that it would be received quite like that in terms of the amount that it was Instagrammed, photographed, was did take us by surprise. But it was, I agree, it was part of the intention. Mm -hmm. I think really it was in the brief as well that it had to be, I'm not completely sure, but I think it might have been used, the word Instagrammable, mm -hmm. because it had to be a profile boost for the gallery, but it had to be a beacon as well. It had to attract and draw people to it. So the more that it was, it, the more that it was circulated, the more that it would do that. Although actually, what you're saying is that it kind of shot itself <laughs> in the fit a little bit because you didn't go because you saw it so much. <laughs> so I don't know whether that was really um, that successful in the end. I think just also that the beacon part of it's really important because you know if you're trying to attract people to a to a venue. A museum in this instance art gallery um, you you don't you don't necessarily just want to publicize something in the architectural press because you'll only get architects going I mean who reads the AJA other than art, architect, architects um, and so developing something that is Instagrammable is the way of kind of spreading the word it is the beacon that goes out it is the driver that actually gets more people to come and not just see the pavilion but see the artworks within the picture gallery itself so in you know you can criticize kind of social media in certain ways but actually if it's kind of opening up a whole new um, uh, audience to the gallery then actually it's 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 done its job the pavilion it is interesting the impact of social media particularly instagram and our profession i suppose um and actually thinking about how what what the impact of that is on our practice and how coming back to how we set the practice up mm -hmm. um, and strategy and how we're perceived now i mean we're only three and a half years old it's a very interesting question to ask would we be where we are now without instagram 
or I guess the internet basically yeah. but you're, you, the idea that we felt the need to put our manifesto up there straight away is, it, it is we only did that because we could do that and maybe it was expected that we put something up there be it a picture of a, a site that we just visited for a side return or a manifesto architects all do the same thing don't they mm. they start a practice and they immediately think that they need to be producing so a practice like ours you know looking back 10 or 15 years again um would have would have just built up a portfolio of work most likely over 10 or 15 years and then maybe you would have heard of us at that point and maybe we'd be having a different conversation because our identity would be based more on a portfolio of work, not about a hope or an aspiration for the future. Mm. I think on Instagram as well, one thing that's really freeing about it is it allows you much to be much less precious about what you put up there. So you can show process, you can show models or model making. You, you, you're showing the creation of buildings, not just the final building. So because you're able to show all of those bits that occur prior to the final beautiful finished photograph, it's great for young architects because when you first set out you don't have any finished building so what do you put what do you put mm. up there instagram allows you to sit there for two years showing that you are producing it just hasn't been a finished building yet mm. yeah it's interesting to see i mean we escaped it luckily um but students putting up their work in progress before crits mm -hmm. i mean i can't imagine anything worse <laughs> than doing that but you know it's again it's almost expected so students do that now yeah that um the, the question of how Instagram affects architecture and how the, in a way it's sort of we consume architecture and imagery. I don't I don't think that's necessarily that different. It's just more wide reaching. What's interesting about it in terms of the way we think about how we sort of represent our finished projects is, of course, we're going to take photographs. That always has been the case. I remember with my the practice I worked for as a Part one, the uh, director talking about the, the money shot, as it were, where the where the photograph was going to be taken, and I think that's still always the case. But mm. now it's we talk about video quite a lot, and we video a lot of our projects because actually that's as you say, there's there's a film of the Dulwich Pavilion on our on our website, but in a way, video allows the viewer to be more immersed in that space or to feel the experience of that space to a greater extent than a, than a still photograph. Um, so I think that that for us is, in terms of how we communicate, quite an important one. I want to talk more about uh, this notion of scaling up now. Now you leverage the smaller projects that you did, the outside of the practice, and kind of miraculously transform them into ever larger commissions. I know that you're working uh, currently on, um, what is it, Joseph Walsh Studio, which is a 10-year transformation of the headquarters of uh, the designer Joseph, Joseph Walsh in Cork. There's also a St. Teresa's School in Surrey, a 900 square meter, uh, is it an extension to a college or a new college? Uh, no, that's a, that's a new sixth form center for a school. We actually got practical completion last week, which oh, wow. is quite exciting. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. It's a <laughs> momentous moment. Um, but so how does that happen? Uh, yeah, just plainly put. 
it's, it's interesting. I think both of those were, but so both Joseph Walsh and St. Teresa's were slightly random connections. Mm-hmm. Um, St. Teresa's came about um, because I happened to be there for an event with my family. And I ended up getting into a conversation with the headmaster's wife, having picked up a copy of a magazine, seeing there were plans for a new art block in there. And she said, oh, it's a disaster. It's been thrown out by planning. We've got to start again. And so I was like, oh, well, if you need any help with that, (laughs) here's my card. And the Monday morning, two days later, I was in a meeting with the headmaster. Um, that's not to say that was easy. We ended up going through a very prolongated process of pitching for that work against very experienced practices, very experienced um, project manager-led teams. And we had to fight for that. And we were very lucky in that, in that instance in that there was a client advisor who could see the value of going for a young practice that would sort of put their heart and soul into that project. I, I, I think... So that's how, that was the bit of luck, yeah. the meeting. Um, but it, it's, it's still, as Thomas says, it was hard securing that, that commission and we fought very hard. But I think it does come back a little bit to the manifesto again and not to bring everything back to it. But it's about your aspiration because a lot of architects having just set up a practice wouldn't have even felt like they could have pitched for that project, but we did. We always have aimed big. And even though that that project will hopefully soon seem rather small in comparison to things we're working on, at the time it was massive. We hadn't actually won the Dulwich Pavilion at that point. It was a few months before that we finally secured that project. Now the practice at that point had only one finished building which was a £100,000 extension. And that was the only finished building we were able to show while we were pitching against three other established practices with school experience. So we did a lot of talking. We did an awful lot of talking about what we believed in, what we wanted to deliver. It tied into our manifesto. We were passionate and we fought and we got it. And that's the bit that I think is really critical. It's about belief and it's about having that aim. If you don't set out that line in the sand at the beginning and you are having a conversation, luckily, with a headmaster or headmistress on on, on a Saturday, random Saturday, you're probably not going to have confidence, I don't think, if you know that you're just finishing a £100,000 extension to say, we'll do that building. We'll do that, that two and a half million pound building. I think it, it, not to take it back to something else we've already talked about, but leverage is really important there as well. So we had a hundred thousand pound extension, as Al says, um, but we were also teaching at the time. So we were able to talk about student engagement mm. and the process of that, but I don't believe any of the other practices or, or project manager led teams talked about to the school. We, we know that because we've been told. And we used the, the work of our consultant team. So we worked with Fluid Structures, who had done a lot of school buildings. Um, we worked with Indigo Planning, who we had worked with on some other projects. And we put together a really 
comprehensible, believable, professional team mm. that resonated with, with the school. And so it was about, um, yeah, not just leveraging our projects, but actually curating a, a team that we, we knew they would have confidence in, or we hoped they would have confidence in. Mm. So as, as projects increase in scale, the office is growing as well. And you're currently, what, nine strong now? Yeah. yeah. Um, and it seems like um, that will only increase too. And so, like, how do you, how does your, um, how does your working style change as a practice grows? That's a good question. It's <laughs> a really good question. Um, I think, I think it's really difficult. Um, so we're really keen to create um, a really positive office culture that means that the people we have in our team, we want them to kind of hopefully have the same values as us. We, we trust them, they're exceptional designers. They're also like great people. Um, but kind of trying to um, sort out a kind of, trying, trying to design a structure for an office, having never done it before is, is really, really tricky. Um, particularly when you're kind of, when you grow so quickly. So saying at the outset, okay, well, like when it's just the three of us, we know how to design a building together. We've been doing it since we were 18. Um, as soon as there's other people in the picture, it's kind of a little bit about letting go as well. Um, and that's a really, that it, it's a really interesting process to go through and, as, and, and also kind of layering a team. So it's not just you and one person kind of who's delivering a project for you. It's, it's also about trying to kind of involve everybody in the design process as well as the delivery. And I think we're still learning on that front. It, it's definitely the speed, isn't it? Yeah. That we, so we grew from three to, to, to nine in a space of six, six months or, or less last yeah. year. And it meant that we designed, I mean, coming back to your initial question, which maybe we'll get onto about why the three of us are sat around here and not one. We design in a, a very collaborative way between the three of us and as Sarah says we've been doing that for a while and we know how that works something that we've been and are aware of and that is still ongoing is is the services designing our practice designing how the practice designs and that output because growing quickly has meant that we've got a team of exceptional people around us but in terms of the letting go or adapting the three of us are still designing as the three of us and we're just working out how we involve the rest of the team and we're trying different things and it's not really necessarily working as we'd like right now if we're honest but it's something that we're very aware of and that we need we need to keep pushing and we need to keep designing that mm -hmm. It's evolving. <laughs> Ask us again in a year's time. <laughs> so I guess on that note, um, projecting forward another five years, what is the ambition? What scale are you at? What type of work are you doing? And how, is the, uh, how does the manifesto itself evolve? So I think the, the manifesto, as you say, sets out a, it's, it's sets out a statement of intent of where we want to go. And I think there's a level of, um, or rather there's a scale of projects that's more urban in terms of benefiting 
wider communities, etc. It's very difficult to do that on a on a private house or an extension. Um, so that's certainly the direction that we want to go. And sort of complex multi-use urban projects would be fantastic. I think that's that's the sort of thing that we would love to be doing in terms of answering some of those um, questions that that we set out originally. Um, that requires a certain scale of practice, but it doesn't necessarily require a huge practice. Um, so we we have never set ourselves limits in, in terms of numbers of growth. We will grow as the as the projects demand, and if we get the work that enables us to deliver some of the things that we want to deliver on, then we will grow accordingly. Um, so hopefully that work comes in. <laughs> All right, well, Thomas, Sarah, Al, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, you very much. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park. Additional music this week is by The Space Lady. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Al Scott, Sarah Castle, and Thomas Bryans. And as always, thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.